Well, good morning, church. About that singing, all I can say is wow. Right? Wow. Pretty awesome stuff. Now, this may not be a comforting thought. It is to me that I'm going to be in eternity with you. Like I said, it may not be. I don't know what it does for you, but... But we lifted up his name together, and that's pretty awesome. That's what we have that binds us together, and we praise God for that. Good to see you. Good to be with you this morning and worshiping the Lord in song and now around his word. There were two brothers who lived in a particular town where they were involved in corruption, uh, deceit, and every manner of vice. Both brothers had accumulated uh, much wealth through their dishonest means. They were the kind of guys everyone loved to hate. Well, there was very little grief in the town, as you can imagine, when the older brother uh, passed away. But his younger brother, wanting to honor his elder sibling, went all out in planning the funeral. The problem was finding a minister willing to do the service, given that neither of them had ever graced the steps of a church and everyone knew of their reputation. Well, knowing that one of the local churches was, one, it was in the midst of a, a capital campaign for some much-needed repairs, the younger brother visited that minister. Reverend, he said, I know my brother and I never attended your church. As a matter of fact, we never attended any church. I also know that you probably heard a lot of things about my brother and I, this being a small town and all, but I'd like you to do my brother's funeral. And if you can say that he was a saint, I'll give you a check for $50,000. That would go a long way to fixing up your church. Well, the minister agreed. The brother wrote a check for $50,000, handed it to the minister, who agreed to say that his brother was a saint. On the day of the funeral, the church was crowded. Curiosity brought dozens of people in who were certainly not there to honor the rich man, but to see what this minister could possibly say. And the minister began slowly, but then step by step, launched into a litany of the horrible things that this dead brother had done how he had been selfish and greedy and corrupt, caring about no one but himself and carousing with women, drinking excessively, and, and on and on he went. The brothers sitting in the service started to get very angry, seeing that the minister did not live up to his end of the bargain. And finally, after about 10 minutes of outlining the brothers' flaws, the minister concluded his sermon in a booming crescendo, saying, Yes, my friends, this man was a no-good, dirty, rotten scoundrel, but compared to his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> he got it in. Not very wise for any minister to take that approach, even for 50000 but you know, there's no verse in the Bible that says, because you're so much better than the people you don't like, God chose you. You see, the greatest competitor to Christianity is not atheism or overindulgence in sin. I believe it's moralism. Moralism. It's the view that believes I'm good enough to earn God's favor or, you know, I'm not so bad at least compared to other people I hear about. I mean, if we can just compare ourselves with the worst, we can feel better about ourselves. 
It's the moralist that has the greatest problem, I believe, with the words of Jesus we're looking at today and the Gospel of John. And so I invite you to turn in your Bibles. Uh, hopefully you have them with you, you, on your phone, whatever it might be. Uh, but go to the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's in the New Testament. We're going to be looking at chapter 14. And we're going to be picking it up in, in verse 6 uh, in a moment. But let me, let me set the table for you. Jesus has just spoken to his disciples about leaving them. In chapter 13, verse 36 of John, Jesus said, Where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. So he's telling them, I am going to leave you. And next week we're going to spend some time in, in, in further on in John around this thought as well. Jesus then speaks of Peter's denial in verse 38. Earlier in the evening, the chapter tells us, chapter 13, that Jesus told them that one of his disciples would betray him. And prior to that, the disciples witnessed Jesus taking up the role of a servant, washing their feet, something that not one of them thought of doing. So you have them as we come to chapter 14. You have these disciples feeling a little ashamed. They're told that one disciple would betray Jesus, that, that Peter, who was their rock, would disown Jesus, and, we, and, and Jesus talking about going away. It would be an understatement to say that their hearts were heavy. I mean, they were shattered, perplexed, saddened, afraid, just a ball of emotions. Well, it's with this in mind, and just setting the table here, it's with this in mind that we hear these words from Jesus' lips, chapter 14 now, verse 1. Chapter 14 of John, verse 1. Jesus says to them, this is on Jesus' lips, he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Now, do you, do you come into this place this morning with a troubled heart? Some situation right now just not makes sense to you. I'm wrestling with that, I'll be honest. Jesus says to you, keep on believing. That's the tense of it. Keep on believing. And then words that are best known at funeral services are spoken by Jesus in verses 2 and 3. You can look at it yourself. I'm not going to read it. But he speaks of, of a future place, of a place that all followers of Jesus can call home. And so those with troubled and heavy hearts this morning, keep on believing. God has a future for you. You can trust Jesus with your future. And if you can trust Jesus with your future, you can trust Jesus with what's going on in your life right at this very moment. Well, it's on the heels of those words of comfort that we come to one of the most outrageous claims Jesus ever uttered. The substance of verses 1 through 3 lies in what Jesus announced in verse 6. Look at it with me now. John 14, 6. Jesus says, familiar words here, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, if you've been here at all lately and watched on live stream, you know that we've been working our way through the Evangelical Free Church Statement of Faith because your pastors and your elders believe it's in the best interest of the church to affiliate with EFCA. But as you've heard me say, I am also absolutely convinced 
that working through our must-haves, the essentials of what we believe, is critical in such a time as we live today. For church, these essentials are our true north, our fixed reference points in a world that seems to make things up as they go. And sadly, even among the Christian community, those who claim to be Christians have what could be described as having their feet planted in midair when it comes to what they believe. Let me give you one example. In a recent study, in a recent study, it said that 60%, 60, 60% of those who call themselves born-again Christians in America between the ages of 18 and 39 believe that Jesus isn't the only way to heaven and that Buddha and Muhammad are valid paths to salvation. Now, it's for that reason, and others, but for that reason, it's the last part of article number five on the work of Christ that's going to get most of my attention this morning. Let me read it for you again. Article number five, the statement says, we believe, it's on the screen, we believe that Jesus Christ as our representative and substitute shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for salvation. Do you see it? His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for salvation. I draw your attention again to Jesus' words. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All right, I want to break that verse down a little bit and give you my first heading this morning. If you want headings, here's one. Here's the first one. Jesus is the way that brings us to God. Jesus is the way that brings us to God. You know, perhaps you've seen the bumper sticker that says, don't follow me, I'm lost. Well, it matters who or what we're following. It's critical to know where we're going. Spence said, if you don't know where you're going, you'll probably end up somewhere else. (laughs) Well, Jesus says here, I am the way. I know where I'm going. Do you know where you're going? Now, notice with me what leads up to Jesus' reply in verse 6. We we sometimes just look at 6 and not see the words around it. But I want us to go back to verse 4 of John chapter 14. Look at verse 4. Jesus says to his disciples here, You know the way to the place where I am going. Now, the truth of it is, the disciples didn't. They didn't. And so I can just imagine as Jesus is, is saying this statement, you know the way to the place where I'm going. It kind of reminds me of my days when I was in Bible college and, and, and it came time for the professor to call on someone to pray. And you kind of were a little, you know, shy at that point to pray out loud. And so everyone would kind of look down at their desk. Don't get eye contact. He won't call on you, right? Well, that's what I picture the disciples doing right now. They're looking down at the ground. Jesus just said, you know the way to the place where I'm going. They're looking all down because they don't know the place where he's going. He's hoping he doesn't doesn't ask them. Because no one knew. And perhaps no one dared to ask the obvious question except for Thomas. Now, I feel bad for Thomas. He's stuck with that label, doubting Thomas. Everyone thinks it's his first name. It's not. It's not even fair that that's his label, right? I mean, you know, some of you know what it's like to have one or two things you've said or done go through you with, through life. How fair is that? Well, Thomas here 
was a believer in the saying that there aren't any stupid questions. And this is an honest question, as Thomas asked. Look at verse 5. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Again, it's kind of like that kid in school who raises his hand and is going to ask that question. You go, what an idiot. I can't believe he's asking that question. But inside you're going, I'm glad he did because that's the question I had. Aren't you glad Thomas asked this question? It's because of this question we then have one of the most profound, staggering statements in all of Scripture. Because Jesus answers Thomas, I am the way. Now notice that Jesus doesn't say that he points to the way or that he simply shows the way or that he is one way. No, Jesus says he is the way, the only way. That's outrageous, snobbish, bigoted. I mean, of all the incredible statements by Jesus, this assertion here gets a strong reaction. It has a tendency, actually, to, to anger people. Because aren't all religions basically the same? I mean, can't we just agree to disagree that Jesus is one way, but that there are many roads that lead to God? Church, church, this is a must-have. This is a must-have. This is an essential of our faith that we must not make any concessions. Because our society has zero tolerance for narrow. Jesus makes it clear there's only one way. He doesn't qualify this. Matter of fact, he shuts the door on there being any other way. And he says at the end of verse 6, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now there's the punchline. No one in the original means no one. Now Jesus is not very politically correct here, now is he? By today's standards, Jesus is not a very good evangelist. This is not how you grow a church. The appeal today is to make the entrance requirements wide. If you're too narrow, no one will come to hear your message. But elsewhere, we hear Jesus speak of this narrow way. Uh, you can jot it down. It's going to be up on the screen. You can look at it later. I'm going to read it for you. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. You see, you can be narrow and wrong, but something isn't wrong simply because it's narrow. One plus two equals one plus one equals two, and four plus four equals eight. Narrow but true. Or and, I, and maybe I've used this example before, but wanting the pilot of the plane that I'm on to land on the airstrip right side up. Rather than upside down, it's kind of narrow on my part, but I hope the pilot has the same idea as I think he ought to have, right? That's narrow. You might think it's quite narrow for your car manual to require you only put unleaded fuel in your car, but try using water instead and tell me how that works out for you. Or... I'll give you one more. Imagine you're sitting in the dentist chair about to get a root canal. Now, that's a pleasant thought. The dentist, he comes in and he says, you know, it doesn't really matter where I do the work for all roads lead to that problem tooth. 
I can go directly to the tooth, or, you know, I really could start on the other side of your mouth and work my way to that tooth. Or, you know what? I can actually go through your neck and work my way up. No, 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 no. I want him to be narrow. Religions and philosophies offer many ways to cross into heaven. They are roads that lead to nowhere. They're dead ends. Jesus says, cross here through me. Now, some suggest, well, you know, as long as you're sincere, that's all that counts. But you can be sincere, but be sincerely wrong. Reminded of a good old, good old Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown, he's muttering to himself after a game of football. And he says, we lost 140 to nothing. 140 to nothing. What a lousy game. And then he adds, but we were so sincere. <laughs> Sincerity cannot change the outcome of your life. Left to ourselves before a holy God, we lose. But the good news is, as the statement reads, we believe that Jesus Christ, as our representative, he pleads our case and our substitute. He took our place. He shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. In other words, nothing is lacking from it, and nothing can be added to it. It's all-sufficient. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for salvation. Now, think with me on this. Who is it that sees this exclusive claim and is repulsed by it? I would argue the moralist who thinks he's good enough and not as bad, at least compared to axe murderers, serial killers, terrorists, and those two brothers. Now, to those who don't see their need of Jesus and that they're good enough to earn their way into heaven and deserve to get heaven on their own, then this claim of Jesus sounds exclusive and just absolutely nonsense. But if you're the kind of person who knows you have rebelled against the holy God, that your sin is offensive to him, and, that, and you know how much you ignore God in your everyday life, you're glad for Jesus' claim here that there is even a way to be saved. For those who are broken and undeserving of God's favor, an exclusive way doesn't sound so bad. You're grateful that a holy God has offered one way of entering his kingdom. Now, exclusive doesn't mean it excludes people in the general sense of it, but it excludes contradicting belief systems. Lee Strobel, he says, imagine two country clubs, two country clubs. One, uh, the first, has strict, a, a strict set of rules and only allows people in who have earned their membership. They have to accomplish something, obtain superior wisdom, fulfill a long list of demands and requirements to qualify for entry. Despite their best efforts, lots of people just won't make the grade and will be excluded. And isn't that what all religious systems are like? He says, now imagine a second club. This club throws its doors wide open and says, anybody who wants membership is invited inside. Rich or poor, black or white, regardless of your ethnic heritage or where you live, we would love to include you. Entry is based not on your qualifications, but only on accepting this invitation. So we'll leave the matter up to you. You decide, but remember, we will never turn you away if you seek admittance. 
Isn't that what Christianity is like? I mean, which country club's being snobbish? Who's being exclusive? Jesus' invitation is to all. Come to the Father through me, Jesus says. All are invited. You see, Christians are not pretending to be better than others because we know Jesus. No, it's as D.T. Niles accurately puts it, Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. Jesus is the way that brings us to God. All right, I'm going to the second point. Be relaxed, it's not as long as the first point, just in case you, if you're keeping track. But Jesus is the truth that sets us free. Jesus is the truth that sets us free. Now, when you think of truth, truth has always been under attack, but it's really off the charts today. I'm not going to go into all of that, but studies reveal that most agree with this statement. Nothing can be known for certain except the things that you experience in your own life. I hope you have a problem with that statement. See, subjectivity is on the throne and truth is its footstool. It's been said truth famine is the ultimate and worst of all famines. And so truth, Jesus as truth, is standing right in front of the disciples, yet for one disciple he isn't quite satisfied. Notice with me verse 8. Philip's heart's right here, I believe. He says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Now, really, I think that's the, the longing of our hearts. Is there any higher goal in life? Lord, show us the Father. How does Jesus answer Philip? Here's a truth statement. He says in verse 9, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is a visible expression of God. He's a visual aid to show who God is. Verse 10, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. See, what we see here is Jesus reminds us of his identity. And we saw this in the last two Sundays, really, in looking at the person of Jesus, that he claimed to be one with the Father. So I'm not going to revisit that. But Jesus claimed to be truth. Jesus claimed to be true, the true representation of God and, and, and speaking the truth about God. Jesus claimed that all people have turned away from God and that the only way they can be brought back was through what he would do on the cross. Church, listen, that is either true, either true, or it isn't. We believe that Jesus Christ, as our representative and substitute, shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for salvation. That is either true or it isn't. Those who deny Jesus died on the cross, as Muslims do, and those who believe Jesus did, on the, did die on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins, as Christians do, both can't be right. They can't. Both those belief systems cannot be true. Either Jesus didn't die on the cross and didn't rise from the grave, or he did. Both those belief systems can't be true at the same time. Jesus is the truth, he says. That means categorically, anything contradicts what he says is false. Because truth, by its definition, must exclude its opposite. All right, practical. Let's get practical here. That means if we say we know him while living contrary to the truth, then there's an obvious disconnect. To know Jesus is to walk in the truth. To know Jesus is to walk in reality. 
Look with me at John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, or jot it down, look at it later. But John 8, 31 and 32. It's only a few pages back. Jesus says to the Jews who had believed him, and read the whole thing. I mean, I'm just giving you a couple of verses. 31. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus saying, I am the truth who sets us free. You see what this is saying? We can only come to Jesus in truth. If we come to Jesus with pretenses, we won't know this freedom. If we come to him denying what we know to be true of ourselves, we will not be set free. If we come to him afraid to tell him what is really going on inside, we will not know this freedom because Jesus can only operate in truth. And so if we're lying to ourselves, if we're lying to others, then we will live a bound, not free life. Because Jesus is the truth that sets us free. Do you know this freedom? Do you know this freedom? And freedom, by the way, is not doing whatever we want. That's how the world defines freedom. I can do whatever I want to do. I'm free. No. Freedom, really, is not doing whatever we want. That's bondage, really. Freedom is doing what we ought to do. Freedom is fulfilling what we are created to become. <laughs> freedom is doing what we ought to do. Freedom is fulfilling what we are created to become. All right, third, third point this morning. Jesus is the life that imparts spiritual vitality, aliveness, energy. He's the life that imparts spiritual vitality. See, you can exist without Christ, but you can't live, really live without him. Jesus is the life, which is why he was always talking about life. You notice that? Both quantity and quality of life. I'm just going to give you a few examples of, of how he always was talking about life. Remember uh, to, to the woman at the well in John chapter 4? This woman, she was searching in all the wrong places to fill the emptiness inside, found herself alone after going through numerous husbands. And Jesus says to her in John 4, Everyone who drinks of this water, meaning at this well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I give him, I give her, will never be thirsty again. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus wants to fulfill and to fill our deepest longing. He wants to give us what our inner being craves the most. Jesus said to the crowd of hungry people, believes John 6. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger spiritually. John 10, 10. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly, have life to overflowing. That describe you? <laughs> Does that describe me? I'm living life to overflowing. <laughs> Sometimes you probably wonder about that. You may wonder it about you. Is Jesus your life? Is your faith alive this morning? Because it's in a person or a cynicism or self-interest or the daily grind of life or disappointment with the church 
or disappointment with God himself just kind of come along and just snuff the life right out of you. Will you dare to ask Jesus to breathe life into your soul this morning? Because if any way your Christianity has shifted, it can happen in my life too. If any way your Christianity has shifted from the person of Jesus to the externals of religion, listen, get your eyes back on Jesus. Get your eyes back on Jesus. And your attempts to find God and get closer to him feel suffocating. Jesus says, no, cross here, cross through me. It's in a person. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Now I remind you that these words here that Jesus spoke were on the eve of his crucifixion. I mean, here stands a man who's about to be nailed to a cross. And he says, I am the way. And where he's going is the cross. He says, I am the truth, and, and, and the lies of evil men are about to triumph. He says, I am the life, and he's about to give up his. Dan Meyer expressed it this way. He said, on Good Friday, sin and evil took two pieces of wood and tried to cross Jesus out. Jesus turned that wood into a sign that still proclaims, road open, cross here. Author Ron Mel talks about a drive he often takes to the east side of Portland, Oregon, over the, the, the Markham Bridge. And he says, on the upper deck of that two-decker freeway, you can catch a glimpse of an exit that drops off into empty space. When the bridge was built back in the mid-60s, he says, it was designed to accommodate an east-running freeway. But if you look carefully, carefully, he says, you can see how the bridge was originally built to accommodate a freeway lane veering off to the southeast. But the freeway was never built. The plans for the highway were scrapped. I've seen roads like that, and they just go nowhere, right? And you go, well, what are they going to do with that one? Mel says, you can see where the road was supposed to go. The entrance ramp now goes nowhere except into the cold waters of the Wallamette River far below. Instead, there sits a permanent sign on the phantom eastbound exit from Markham Bridge that says dead end. A road that goes nowhere. That describes our attempts to reach God. We build religious systems. We create, create a complicated list of do's and don'ts. We construct moral frameworks. We do charitable things, but corroded and corrupted by sin, even the very best of these things can't really close the gap. They can't span the distance. Well, then how do we get there? Well, I think most of you know the answer. Jesus has bridged the gap in the cross and has provided the only way for man or woman, young or old, to come and know God. And so whatever path you've been on, will you turn towards the one who says, the person who says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He says, cross here, cross here. There was a sign outside of a church that had two sections to it. On this church sign, on one section, it had the words, the road to hell, keep straight on. On the other section, the other side of the sign, it said, the road to heaven, right about turn. See, the road to hell is to do nothing at all. Change nothing, just keep straight on. Just keep doing what you're doing. 
The road to heaven is to hear the voice of Christ and do an about face, a right about turn, and, and, and to change your direction into his, and onto his path. What path will you take? Why do some refuse this path? Well, in Pilgrim's Progress, great book. I mean, besides this, I mean, read this many times, but read Pilgrim's Progress too. But in Pilgrim's Progress, Christian and two others, hypocrisy and formalists, the two names, they think they're doing fine. They come, all come to a foot of a hill. And there is this path that goes straight up the hill, but there are two other roads, one that goes to the right and another path and road that goes to the left. And as I remember this, as the three of them come to the foot of the hill and look up, all they can see is that it's steep and high. That big hill is called difficulty. Difficulty. Christian says, I'm going up the hill. The other two men, when they see that the hill is steep and high, and that there were two alternative ways for them to go, to go, they decide to follow what appeared to, be, to them to be the easier routes. The name of one of the paths was called danger, and the name of the other path was called destruction. So one proceeded along danger, which led him to great wood, never to be seen again. The other went along destruction, which entered a wide field full of dark mountains, and there he stumbled and fell, never to rise again. Young or old, as you look ahead to the many paths you can take in life, all the opportunities open up to you. There is a way that seems right to a man, to a woman, to a young person. It avoids the hills. It avoids the difficulties. It is the easy way. It's what everyone else is doing. But in the end, the Bible says, it leads to death, destruction, danger. There's only one way to go across here, Jesus says, is up, to the hill, up the hill called difficulty. And Christian and Pilgrim's Progress, again, if I remember this correctly, Christian and Pilgrim's Progress, he went up the hill. He started out running up the hill, but then it turned to walking up the hill, and then his walking was reduced to crawling on his hands and knees because of the steepness of the incline. It was just too difficult, and he's, on his, he's crawling around. Jesus is the way that brings us to God. Jesus is the truth that sets us free. Jesus is the life that imparts spiritual vitality. But listen, he never said it would be easy. And frankly, and I know I've shared this with you before, I am sick and tired of hearing the invitation by some, come to Jesus, he will solve all your problems. Come to Jesus, and, and, and life is a trouble-free, and everything will just fall into place. Bogus! Strongest word I know that's going to not be too offensive. <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. <sighs> Kids don't use that word, that's for sure. Jesus' way, listen, it's marked difficulty. It's difficult to face our sin. It's difficult to humble ourselves and admit we need him. It's difficult to live a life of self-denial. It's difficult 
to turn from what is giving us that, that temporary fix and great pleasure to what he promises is lasting, truly fulfilling, and better than the best thing here on earth. Believer, I know the path at times can be quite steep and quite difficult. I don't live in a bubble. We're in my office and never come out. And I know in those times that there are other options that have their appeal. And some have left the road marked difficulty and chosen alternate paths to have only discovered pain and destruction and death-like existence, if not now, later. The best path is to go through the person of Jesus Christ. He says he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. Cross here, Jesus says. Let's prepare our hearts for communion. God, thank you for these words. Thank you for the exclusive claim that you've made a way so that we could find you through Jesus Christ. You provided the only way. Because left to ourselves, there's just a bunch of dead ends and roads that go nowhere. So thank you for Jesus. We're remembering now as we come around this table what he did for us. And remember, celebrate that well this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare for communion, I thought about a, G a German poet and skeptic, and I won't even try and pronounce his name. But on his deathbed, he declared, God will forgive me. That's his job. Hmm. Is forgiveness God's duty? His obligation? God simply just forgive everyone freely and say, you're all forgiven. Our communion that we're remembering this morning reminds us that mere forgiveness of sinful human beings apart from an act of judgment on sin would be in contradiction to God's holy character. God hates sin with a holy hatred. You can't just say, oh, you're all just fine. God's justice demands a payment, one that sinful human beings can't make. And Jesus, the perfect sinless being, acted on our behalf and in our place. He bore the penalty. He sacrificed, his sacrifice satisfied all the requirements of God's holiness and justice. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And Paul says in Corinthians, by this gospel you are saved. And he continues and says, for what I received I passed on to you of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. That's what we remember today. That's why we're forgiven. Right there. So I invite you, if you know Jesus, go and get some elements from one of the tables back there or the one up front and bring them back to your seat. We'll take this communion together. There's some prepackaged ones back there and, and gluten-free. Just make your way out of your seats as you prepare your heart for um, and taking communion this morning.
Again, I read, this is not just to be a statement, but something we embrace. I believe that Jesus Christ as our representative and substitute shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for salvation. Church, let's take and eat. way we take the cup reminds us of his sacrifice on the cross the blood shed for us do this church in remembrance of me God we do come wanting to remember what you have done we're forgetful people I would guess that this one reason you want us to do this on a regular basis because we forget I pray we won't forget what it is that you've done for us as we go from here this morning. As we remind ourselves with a song that you are the Messiah, you're the ransom, you're the one who paid our penalty. You're the name that's above all names, and we thank you. In Jesus' precious name.